Welcome to the JACCP podcast. My name is Jerry Bauman, and I'm the editor of the Journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Today, we're talking with Dr. Brandon Bookstaver about his paper published in the April issue of JACCP entitled Pharmacist Authorship on Clinical Practice Guidelines. Dr. Bookstaver is an associate professor and director of the residency and fellowship training programs at the University of South Carolina College of Pharmacy. He also just began serving on the editorial board for JACCP. Dr. Bookstaver, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Bowman. I appreciate the opportunity to be here this morning. First off, uh, thank you very much for submitting your paper to JACCP. Could you describe the background and purpose of your study and what methods your group used to gather the key data? Certainly. My, my research typically centers around economic and clinical outcomes in the infectious disease world, but I really do enjoy scholarship and in other areas that impacts our profession directly. And I really like it when the research can be led by trainees. And so this really combined both. I think most people listening would would say anecdotally that pharmacist inclusion on clinical practice guidelines is limited. Uh, this gave us an idea to take that anecdotal thoughts and, and put it into to true evidence. Uh, Institute of Medicine, which now is known as the as NAM or the National Academy of Medicine, recommended back in 2011 that expert guideline panels really should be multidisciplinary in nature and incorporate clinical and methodological experts which I think most would agree of dealing with pharmacotherapeutic recommendations, that would mean a pharmacist with expertise in the area. So we analyzed the clinical practice guidelines that were available on the AHRQ website from 2010 to 2016. Uh, this is, well, maybe I should say this was, um, I'll talk about that in a little bit, but uh, it was a very inclusive listing of guidelines. And so we had to apply some exclusions. Uh, we wanted to limit it to those with pharmacotherapeutic recommendations. So the AHRQ has a tab available that says intended for pharmacists. So we use this as a very conservative way to apply inclusion criteria to say we really want clinical practice guidelines reviewed that have therapeutic recommendations as part of that. So from there, one of our former residents, Brandon Hill, and two of our students, April Tompkins and Brian Norman, they went through each guideline author by author to collect the necessary data points. And our primary endpoint was really the proportion of clinical practice guidelines with a pharmacist author. And that was pretty straightforward. And then we looked at a couple of secondary things as well uh, regarding uh, maybe some discipline specific, uh, where these authors fell as far as the degree of their contribution, and then how many authors were represented from a pharmacist standpoint per guideline. Great. Thank you. Then could you summarize uh, your findings and key results? Well, we ended up with about, well, not about, we ended up with 143 clinical practice guidelines included. Uh, 40% of those had at least one pharmacist author. But if you look at it a little more specifically, uh, this number actually dipped to 30% when you remove the Clinical Pharmacogenomics Implementation Consortium or the CPIC guidelines or any Veterans Affairs or Department of Defense guidelines. So there were 20 of those and all 20 of those universally had a pharmacist represented. So when you remove those from the analysis uh, and really do the, the, the sub-analysis here, it dipped to, to 30%. So of the overall 58 clinical practice guidelines that did have a pharmacist, about half or 27 of those had a single pharmacist author. And there was about 130 pharmacists total as authors. 
83 of these were unique, and that represented 7% of all authors that were included on these guidelines. So uh, as you stated in the, in the paper and, and just now, uh, this figure is predominantly driven by authorship on the CPAC uh, or the VA DOD guidelines. So are you encouraged or discouraged by your findings? Well, I think in general, it should be motivating to our profession and our pharmacy organizations because it's probably not, that number is not where it needs to be uh, and, and probably not where it should be to optimize guideline recommendations and improve patient care. You know, looking back, it's hard to know what type of contributions would have been made uh, or, or were made in retrospect. Um, but remember, we took a very conservative look at guidelines. That criteria we applied really tried to narrow down to only those with, with therapeutic recommendations. And some could argue that we probably even left out guidelines that, that should have had or could have had a pharmacist included to optimize uh, the recommendations. But, but the bottom line here is it's not really about who gets the credit from a profession standpoint um, or even a pharmacy organization standpoint. It's really about optimizing care through these clinical practice guideline recommendations. I think everybody knows how much they can drive patient care. Uh, they, they really drive, drive third-party payers, formulary decisions, uh, certainly local treatment protocols, which are often designed directly and updated when a new guideline comes available. Great points. Um, one thing I found interesting is that if you exclude the CPIC and the VA, VA DOD guidelines, pharmacists were first senior or corresponding author on only seven other guidelines. What were some of the examples of those? Yeah, that's a good point. So one that a uh, few that come to mind, the, the guidelines for the evaluation and management of status epilepticus the, this was uh, sponsored by the Neurocritical Care Society. So actually the first author, uh, someone well-known to, to our group, is Gretchen Brophy, a uh, professor at BCU. A couple of other ones, too, that come to mind. Um, part of the CHESS guideline series, the evidence-based management of anticoagulant therapy with a focus on therapy and prevention of thrombosis. There are actually three pharmacists here. One kind of unique, uh, Ann Holbrook, who is the lead author for McMaster. She's a PharmD MD. Um, which, again, I think is quite valuable. Uh, Daniel Witt, who's at the University of Utah, and then David Veenstra, who's at University of Washington. Uh, so really three authors uh, were on that guideline. And then some of the Aspen guidelines, so nutrition support of adult patients with hyperglycemia, they actually had a really good representation uh, of pharmacists. So you can see there's, there's some critical care type of uh, maybe emphasis here, um, if you think of it in a broad way of, of pharmacistic inclusion on the guidelines. So as you, as you also point out in your paper, most guidelines are initiated by medical professional societies. And the publication of these guidelines often drive the impact factor of the society's official journal. Could you summarize some of the controversies about this practice? Absolutely. It certainly has, uh, has driven a few discussions, uh, letters to the editor notwithstanding here. But some have proposed that this is really just a tangled web of conflict of interest, um, as you alluded to, to the societies themselves, um, but also for specialists in general. Uh, one of the examples this used is, you know, cardiovascular specialists who are constructing guidelines may drive recommendations for intensive specialist care, 
which then in turn would drive their potential worth and position as a necessity for patient care. And, you know, these journals are often sponsored by medical organizations that may get significant income attributed to them from, from pharma or other industries. And, and I think that that's part of the, the controversy. Now, certainly an organization like ACCP, which doesn't really take industry support, their journal avoids that type of concern. Some of the other thoughts that are out there, the members of the panel themselves are, are often most cited individuals in their area, often conflicted. Uh, thus, they gain by inclusion on authorship panels. The more they're cited, the more they're sought after for other things. Now, I personally don't think this is necessarily a bad thing, though. Um, I think if the, the guideline panels handle conflict of interest appropriately through sound vetting and the recognized panel development methods, that many of these concerns can really be managed. It, it's also a catch-22. You know, in my view, there's tremendous value in having the true experts in the area on the panel. So those are certainly the ones that are going to be most cited often and are the clinical scholars out there and, and folks that we do want at the table for making these very important decisions. But I think most would agree that if you have representation from other field experts like pharmacists, that maybe you can mitigate some of these other concerns, uh, even a patient advocate, non-specialist members of panel, the like. But I do think that when you have these non-specialists sitting at the table, uh, they really need to be empowered to speak up and have impact on the guideline recommendations. Because then I think you keep that, that balance and that concern that's there if you have non-specialists or pharmacists who may not have the same type of perceived or real um, conflicts uh, with the specialist-related recommendations that you may provide a little more a little more balance to those conversations and thus the recommendations. Well, I think we both agree it would be advantageous to our profession if we had more clinical pharmacist representation on important pharmacotherapeutic guideline development. What are some strategies uh, that the profession might use to accomplish this? Yes, Jerry, I, I, I definitely, definitely agree with you on this. First, I think we have to acknowledge this is not going to happen overnight. Guidelines take time. Development of the guideline panels themselves take time. So this, this would be several years um, in the future. I think a couple of things. One, I would suggest that we really have to do a good job to identify these content experts, these, those who are established scholars in the area and promote them within those sponsoring organizations. Uh, I've already mentioned that the, the, whomever is on these guideline panels they will be working with very recognized scholars and experts in these areas, and oftentimes subspecialists or, or intensive specialists. So they've got to be able to, to speak up and bring the credentials to the table that offer this opportunity for them to influence guidelines in a positive way. Many of the pharmacist authors that, that we recognize are very active in these medical organizations as well. I mean, Gretchen Brophy is a perfect example. I mentioned her earlier. But for example, she's been president of the Neurocritical Care Society in the last couple of years. I think hearing from, from some of those that have served on the panels, maybe getting the why behind their inclusion would also help. You know, I think it's easy for us to say that some of this is through their collegial connections that they do through scholarly work. They're doing a lot of interdisciplinary work, certainly through their work with the medical societies. Um, but I think that would be valuable to hear from some of those as well as to the pathway to this uh, to, to help influence and, and direct others. You know, one of the comments that I've gotten through this uh, after this publication was, 
you know, hey, is, is there a pharmacist expert out there for everything? And they were actually asking specifically for influenza. Um, and as an example, the new influenza guidelines just came out and there wasn't a pharmacist on those, on those guidelines. So my answer was certainly yes. And the question was, well, how do we know that? And so I think, and this was coming from, from a physician colleague. And so I, I think that that speaks volumes of, hey, if we have a expert in the area, a clin- clinician, a scholar, a methodological expert, certainly doesn't always have to be a clinician, could be a methods expert who can contribute to improving these guidelines. It is up to, to us to help promote them. Uh, sometimes this also requires money uh, because a pharmacist may need to attend uh, guideline panel meetings. Um, and so that may be sponsored through a pharmacy organization as well. And lastly, I really do think the more pharmacy organizations can serve as partners in this, so as endorsing groups or even as sponsoring groups in the future, I think the better it will be. You know, for example, the polymixin guidelines just published in pharmacotherapy is one recent example of this. Well, great. Well, Dr. Bookstaver, uh, thank you very much for uh, joining the podcast today. And we really appreciate your contribution uh, to JACCP as an author. And also congratulations on being named a recent editorial board member. So again, thank you for taking the time today and sharing your perspective. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it.